Good. Well, go to Psalm 11. As I mentioned a minute ago, we want to focus our attention on the events um, surrounding us in the present. Specifically, what's driving a lot of my thoughts for this evening is what happened two days ago, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And it's really, really a bad time to be a Russian person. So I recognize that as a Russian person. I wish I wasn't Russian this week, but you know, it is what it is. And I do not endorse the invasion. All right, just for the record, in case anybody's wondering, is Mark for Putin or is he for Zelensky? I am for Ukraine today. All right, when things calm down, I'm going to switch sides again. Um, you know, if you've missed the details of this horrific situation, it was 3.59 a.m. Ukraine time on Wednesday morning, where the best way to describe what happened was a blitzkrieg where Putin just stormed into a foreign autonomous country. And after six months of lying to the world, and especially most recently lying almost weekly, if not multiple times a week about not invading, he did the exact opposite. And certainly we shouldn't be so quick to believe and trust um, sinful political rulers who are out there to protect their power and their finances primarily, especially corrupt finances. As you know, anything, if you know anything about Putin, you know how corrupt he is and how much of a dictator he is, having been in power now for over 20 years. And he just uh, changed the rules such that he can be in power until 2036. Imagine that. We're getting into Old Testament style kings who ruled for half a century. And he would be the longest reigning Russian leader in all of Russian history, including longer than Stalin, who was in power for 27 years. But Putin invaded Ukraine at 4.50 in the morning, so 50 minutes after this initial attack. He tells the world, specifically telling his own country, but of course everybody's watching, and I quote, this is just a special military operation to protect people who have been subjected to abuse and genocide by the Kiev regime for eight years. The eight years comes from the period of 2014 where he invaded Crimea and took over that territory that also used to be Ukrainian. He denied repeatedly of any kind of incursion or even said that we're not going to occupy Ukrainian territories. We're not, and I quote, we're not going to impose anything on anyone by force while 200,000 Troops and thousands of combat vehicles have by that point surrounded Ukraine. It was at 5.07 a.m. Ukraine time where the Russian forces launched a series of missile attacks against multiple cities. Some of the media misrepresented what was actually happening, but I was live texting with friends in Ukraine who are pastors who faithfully came here year after year to Shepherd's Conference. We have two missionary families there right now. Who are op- who've, used, who've opened up their church basement as a shelter, and they're already serving the community by housing people and serving people and feeding people. These are two missionary families who have been there since 1992. And over the last few weeks, as elders, we've been talking, emailing with them, anticipating an invasion, trying to figure out how to best counsel them on what to do. And through all those prayers and conversations, they made a decision as of two days ago not to flee to Poland, as many are doing. There's 30 kilometers of uh, cars on the road lined up to get into Poland at this point. And they decided to stay and to serve their community in Kiev. 
So whatever you're reading about Kiev, understand that this is exactly the city where our missionaries are currently. About 25 cities were attacked on Wednesday morning, and now we've had about two days of war. The first casualty was a 15-year-old boy. And so you understand that this is war. This isn't just trying to destroy a few military bases or just the airports. No, he was going after the full country. The last time I read the news about an hour ago, there were 137 civilians killed and many military personnel and over 300 people injured already. 50,000 refugees have left Ukraine to Poland and Moldova. So you can imagine the crisis that is upon Europe. And what's very disheartening is after months and months of promises from NATO and the American politicians that they would protect Ukraine if something happened with Putin, everybody is sitting and watching and merely talking, let's be honest, about what's happening with the Western world and Western uh, free world democracies just watching. The latest, about 40 minutes ago, he's now threatening Finland and Sweden. So if you think Putin just wanted the little portion on the eastern part of Ukraine that has a good number of Russian-speaking people. He has ambitions that are to restore the Soviet Union. And uh, if you know history, and I hope, if you don't, you need to brush up on your history. Unfortunately, those who don't know history are what? Doomed to repeat it. Exactly. And if you are aware of World War II history, you remember 1938 when Hitler entered Sudetenland. That was Crimea eight years ago. And then a year later, he walked into Poland on September 1st, 1939. Well, that's Ukraine this week. And uh, Hitler didn't stop. And if anybody has any common sense, Putin isn't planning to stop either, especially when he's already made a pact with Cuba and China. So I think we have to be realistic about what's happening in the world. And certainly, I hope you've been praying. And if you haven't, Tonight, I would hope that you would commit to be praying regularly, not just this evening, not the half hour we'll spend together praying as a group, but you would commit to pray, and not just for the Christians that you may know or may have heard, or you'll see some images on the screen a little bit later, but the people in Ukraine, those who've already lost family members, and those who are yet to lose more family members. Seemingly, a new cold war is upon us, and maybe another Iron Curtain will fall, and... Um, from my understanding of recent events, Putin has basically has five of the 15 Soviet republics already under his control. So if you understand what's happened in the East, in Chechnya and Kazakhstan and Georgia and Belarus and Crimea and now Ukraine, it's five of 15. So there's only a few left. But when you start to threaten Finland and Sweden, you understand that your ambition is beyond the former Soviet Union. As you read that in the news, as you hear me talk about it, Hopefully, you're frustrated. Hopefully, you're angry at the sin that's right in front of your eyes. Well, that's abroad. Thousands of miles away, takes you at least 10 hours to fly there to that European continent. Come home a little bit. The appointment of a left-leaning, radically left-leaning judge to the Supreme Court, you know, and we'll see what the Senate does in the coming days, but the fact that it's been announced that he chose um, a very far left radical individual indicates what our country thinks about law, jurisprudence, the court system, and what the current administration wants to see happen in this country. Just open your eyes and look north and see what is happening in Canada 
over the last multiple weeks and the tyranny that those people have been going under, under the guise of safety and executive powers being invoked to protect people from, I guess, what I'm reading primarily or mostly peaceful protests. The potential invasion of Taiwan by China, the indoctrination in our country by the LGBTQ LGBTQ community of children and all the way to higher ed, the fight to preserve the right to kill a baby in the womb is only beginning. This morning, there was an announcement made that four U.S. companies will pay $26 billion to settle claims of an opioid crisis. At the same time, admitting no wrongdoing while they settle it for $26 billion. And if you want to know the impact of that, just Google San Francisco opioid crisis. And you'll see what's happening on the streets of San Francisco. Reading the news is depressing. And discouraging and really ignorance is bliss. If you want to live in a world where you're not wondering what is happening. Where's God? What is, why is God allowing so much lawlessness? to be present in our current world and seemingly so fast. If you're following our own district attorney's decisions, Gascon and what he's doing with the legal world, releasing convicts prematurely, reducing sentences to an abysmal numbers and mocking the entire system such that the families of the original victims have to now take him to court in order to protect themselves from a premature release of those who previously killed their own family members. But this is happening in San Francisco, in Chicago, in New York. The district attorneys are mocking the law, favoring the criminals, not the victims. Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 seem very prophetic from today's point of view. Realize this, Paul says to Timothy, in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, Paul reflects on the leader the primary leader of the tribulation period, and he calls him the man of lawlessness. In other words, what's going to characterize the end times is lawlessness such that the main leader will embody lawlessness. And that's the preview of the tribulation. And I think what's happening today is a true preview of that horrific seven-year period where this Antichrist will rule the world. How are we to respond? as Christians, as those who believe that God is alive and that God is watching and that God cares. And God, according to the Bible, loves this world and the people that he created. Psalm 11 has been on my mind in recent days and weeks. I'd like to take us to that psalm as a way to prompt our prayer time together. Because Psalm 11 is David's reflection on the same question. And this is what he writes. In the Lord, I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? 
For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That seems to summarize today's events. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in the heaven. His eyes behold, his his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. As we consider the current events through the lens of Psalm 11, Psalm 11 escorts the reader, in this case, the writer David in his own heart as he speaks to his own soul from a crisis to confidence. Because what's happening around us is a crisis. It's a crisis of politics. It's a crisis of life. It's a crisis of academics and education. It's a crisis of morality. It's a crisis at every possible um, level when you consider civilization. And in this Psalm, David was also going through his own personal crisis. He finds himself in peril from his enemies. And in that moment, his thought in verse one is to flee as a bird to your mountain. And this imagery of an individual fleeing away from the crisis, it evokes imagery of homelessness, imagery of isolation. It signals powerlessness. The righteous feels powerless in face of evil. And he wants to just solve it in the temptation to relinquish your responsibility to be a light and to be faithful and to speak up, whether it's in an LGBTQ conversation or whatever else might be happening. Sometimes fear controls our minds and our hearts. That often is the default setting of a person is to pull back and to flee and to find safety and to find protection, to find refuge and to escape danger. And David says in verse two, behold, the wicked bend the bow. It's an emphatic way of saying, look, can't you see what's happening? They're intentionally using their bow. And then the next phrase, they're sending the arrow. They're making the arrow ready on the string. And they're intending to harm the righteous, the upright in heart at the end of verse two. So he says, I'm watching this happen where there's an intentional purpose by the wicked to harm the righteous. This is aggression. This is not a defensive tactic by the wicked in order to protect themselves from the righteous. It's the opposite. It's an aggressive tact taken by the wicked to harm the righteous. And so out of despair, David cries out in verse three, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? It's a sense of frustration. It's a cry for help. You feel outnumbered. You feel overwhelmed. You feel hopeless and desperate and outraged. And I think it's all right and appropriate to feel outraged at the lawlessness and the injustice that is in front of us. Jesus did. He certainly felt Frustration, 
even in the hearts of his own disciples, when he calls them, you hard of heart? Because he understood the sin that existed and the injustice that would come and the sin that would ultimately come out in their lives. In some sense, when we see injustice and lawlessness and becoming so predominant and so global, it's overwhelming. And um, we feel like the foundation that we have established with our own hands at times, with our own money, sacrificing our time, that foundation is being eroded. And so verse three, what if the foundations are destroyed? What do we do? It's the foundation that we have established. How do we stop this erosion? You just consider the history of this country, the Judeo-Christian ethic upon which our initial laws were founded and the constitution, and it seems to be eroded and eroding in front of our eyes by the president of this country and the highest people in authority. How do we respond? When money Is that going to solve the problem? Your position may not solve the problem. Your wealth, whatever you've accumulated over your lifetime, will not solve the problem. Your friends, your family may not be helpful. Even a certain citizenship may not be helpful to you either in a certain crisis. How do we respond? How do we go from this crisis to confidence? And that's our second point in Psalm 11. The first three verses indicate that there is a crisis. But then in verses four through seven, David says, there's a way to find confidence amidst a crisis or a way to move from a crisis to a moment of confidence or really a place of confidence. And the very first word in verse four in the original language is the answer. Yahweh, he says. The Lord is the source of our confidence and is the one who will rescue us. So David, after dealing with fear and frustration and thinking about fleeing the crisis that he's in, away from the chaos of his life, he now redirects his focus onto the one object, the one person who can actually do something about it, who can solve this crisis, Yahweh. And then he repeats Yahweh in verse 5 and in verse 7 and again in verse 4. Yahweh appears four times in the second half of the psalm. In other words, Yahweh is the answer to the problem, to this crisis and to the chaos around us. And he gives us four reasons in this second half of the psalm why we can't find confidence in God. Why we can't find confidence in Yahweh in the middle of whatever crisis you might be experiencing, no matter how personal it might be or how global the crisis may be. And the first reason, he says, is because God reigns. God, Yahweh, is in his holy temple. The Lord or Yahweh, his throne is in heaven. One writer said this, the restoration of confidence begins with the recognition that God is still on his throne. It's effected by turning the eyes away from the threatening foes and upward toward the sovereign Lord. The imagery here is not so much about God's location as God's power. 
and God's fidelity to his power, his ability to be in charge. In Psalm 115, verse 3, it says it so plainly. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he wants. Psalm 115, verse 3. That's the idea behind the statement. Yahweh, the Lord, is in his holy temple. His throne is in the heavens. It's separated from human beings. It's holy. It's just. It's different than any other throne on this planet. But it's also higher than any other throne. And he is in his holy temple. And to confess that Jesus, that, that Yahweh rather, is in his holy temple is to indicate that God is present. Do you remember what the point of the temple was in the Old Testament? What was the temple supposed to signify in the Old Testament? <laughs> Louder. Presence. More confidence. There we go. Presence. Whose presence? God's presence. God's presence with his people. That's the whole point of the temple. Before the temple, you had the tabernacle signifying the same thing. Before the tabernacle, you had the, the pillar of fire and the cloud. Then you get to the New Testament. You have Jesus, John 1, 14. He's the embodiment of God's presence with his people. But the temple was a symbol of God's presence. So when David says the Lord is in his holy temple, what he's saying is the Lord is still with his people. He's still in there indicating his commitment to his people. It is reminiscent of Isaiah chapter six. Do you remember Isaiah chapter six? Some of you do. What's in Isaiah six? Help me out here. God is on his throne. Exactly. And maybe somebody remembers the background to Isaiah six, the historical background. Come on, seminary gents. King Isaiah dies. Non-seminary answers. Thank you. <laughs> King Isaiah dies. Did you read that? Just kidding. <laughs> Verse one says the King Isaiah is dead. Okay. Isaiah reigned for 52 years in Israel. People were born. People died with only seeing and knowing and hearing about one king, Isaiah. And then he dies. And so now Isaiah is panicking about the stability of Israel, the incoming incursion from Assyria that is imminent. And so he goes into the temple to pray. And this is what he sees. He enters the temple and he saw the Lord, verse one of Isaiah six, sitting on the throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. The, the reason that the, the length of his robe is mentioned because back in the day, the length of a king indicated and symbolized the extent of his kingdom. So a king who had more puppet kings under his reign had a longer robe. So where in this case, the train of his robe fills the whole temple. In other words, it just you know, wraps out the whole temple interior. In other words, he has no limit to his kingdom, to his power. That is exactly what Isaiah needed to see. That while he's in a crisis, wondering about the future of God's people, God shows him the reality of who's in control. That God is still on his throne and he's in charge and nothing will ever change that. So when David says something similar, the Lord is, on, is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in the heavens. He's symbolizing the same message. God is with us. 
and God is on his immovable throne. Nobody can get to heaven and drag God off his throne. Not Putin and no other dictator in current history. God is exactly where he belongs. And he hasn't shifted a millimeter on his throne. He's in charge. So that gives us hope in a moment of crisis that God reigns. Sometimes people forget that reality. And God has to remind them that he's on the throne, not some human individual who aspires to be on God's throne or have a kingdom that doesn't end. And we see that in the story of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35. After Nebuchadnezzar experienced God's judgment, seven years living in the wild as an animal, eating grass. This is his conclusion when his senses returned to him. I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what are you doing? People forget that God is on his throne. And then when people aspire to dethrone God, as Lucifer did at one point, God reminds them sometimes in these radical ways by turning Nebuchadnezzar, who was the most powerful monarch at that point in human history, exiling him into the wild to learn humility. We don't know what God is doing through Putin. We don't know what God is doing through Biden or NATO and why they're inactive in face of aggression. We have no idea. And anybody who hypothesizes and has a grand, brilliant idea is simply doing that, hypothesizing. They don't know because only God knows the future. What we do know from the Bible is that God has a plan for human history. And every single day, God's plan advances toward the climax of human history. And not a single world leader can in any way slow down that plan, derail that plan, speed up that plan, or in any way modify that plan. You can't. They can't. Because God's plan to establish his kingdom that has no end, as we just read in Daniel 4, will ultimately be established. And while sometimes we think God is absent, and why is God not doing something? Why isn't God? Hey, if it's true in Proverbs, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. If that's true, why isn't God moving on the heart of Biden? or the NATO leaders to actually do something against this aggressor. We have to process those kind of verses in our mind because we see that this is evil and people are being killed for somebody's lust for power. Well, the next point indicates that God is watching and he's aware and he's knowing about all that's happening and that gives us confidence. So there, it takes us in verses four and four that God is 
observing what's happening. We see God's regard in verse four, the second half. His eyes see. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. The one who loves violence, his soul hates. Look at verse 10, uh, Psalm 10, verse 11. This is the evil individual saying this to himself. God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. And in in Psalm 11, David comes back and contrasts exactly that statement. You think God doesn't see? No, God sees and God tests. So David reaffirms to himself. Remember, this is David's conversation with himself. His soul is who wants to flee as the bird to the mountain. And so he's trying to remind himself of the truth of God's existence and God's power and God's presence. And so he says, God is watching. He's able to observe all that's happening. God is an active player in the global events. He is relevant to the situation. Deism is wrong. God hasn't just left this world to operate on its own mechanics. No, God is involved and he's watching and he's using the details of these evil individuals to bring about his ultimate plan and to establish his ultimate kingdom. In other words, God's power is not abstract. It's not limited to the past, nor is it simply about the future. Right? We know about God's power in the past. Just read the Old Testament. Plenty of stories to reaffirm that to us. And we know about God's plan for the future because we have some prophetic books and we anticipate that future, the establishment of the millennial kingdom and the tribulation and the judgment on this world. We know about that and we know that God's, God is powerful to accomplish all that. And yet in the present, sometimes we forget when we get frustrated that God doesn't see and God doesn't have enough power to stop what's happening right in front of our eyes. Don't we forget that? That's exactly what causes frustration and the crisis in our hearts is the forgetfulness that God is watching. He's aware. He's involved. He's engaged. He's regarding all that's happening. Psalm 139 is one of the best places that demonstrates this truth, that God is aware of the details of our lives. Oh Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know me when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path by lying down. You are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You enclosed me behind and before you laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I can't attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell on the remotest part of the earth, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me or hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are alike to you. In verse 23, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there's any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So verses 1 through 12 talk about the intimate knowledge that God has of each of us. In the middle of the psalm, he talks about he knew us in, when we were still in the womb. And in response to that, he says, okay, because of your knowledge, 
in the ability of your knowledge, your omniscience, find every single anxious thought and uproot it. That's truth for a crisis. Because if we understand that God is watching and God knows, then that should give us confidence that he can actually do something about it. And here, back in Psalm 11, David says, your eyes are watching, the eyes behold. His eyelids test the son of man. This is the all-seeing eye of God as a searchlight scanning the globe and scanning your life and my life. And he doesn't see our actions simply or hear our words. He sees our thoughts. And he knows our deepest, darkest, darkest sins. There is an application here for self-reflection as well. It's not just about Putin. It's about our own lives and whether we remember that God sees and God tests, verse 4 and 5, the heart's of man, Hebrews 4.12 says, nothing is hidden from his sight. And we will give an account to whom, with whom we have to do. So in verse two, the wicked are bending their bow. They're pointing their arrow. They want to shoot in darkness. The idea being, if I do this in the dark, if I start my attack on Ukraine at 5.07 a.m., Maybe they'll miss it. Maybe the world will be sleeping. Maybe God won't see it if I do what I do at night. That's the idea behind verse two. And yet it says, no, God sees. Verse four, God sees the dark and the light are alike to him. And what is God doing with this knowledge? The third point, the third reason why we have confidence is because of God's recompense. Because of God's recompense, and that's verses five and six. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. God is the judge who will ultimately reward the righteous and he will bring about retribution on the wicked. And the basis for that justice is in verse 7. He is righteous, he loves righteousness, and the upright will behold his face. David uses language that has to do with testing precious metals and purifying them to make them more valuable. You purify gold, you purify silver to get rid of all the dross, to make it more valuable. And says, this is what God is doing in the hearts of men. He is shining his searchlight. He's looking into your life, into your heart, in order to expose sin and purify you. In order to make you more precious and more valuable. There's two forms of evaluations going on here, right? You've got the eyes of God watching the eyelids, testing, and on some there's a form of judgment and fire and brimstone and burning wind. It's a fire of judgment. It's, it's a purifying fire in the sense of judging, fire, judgment that comes with it. And the one who loves violence, ultimately God destroys. 
So if God is doing all this, if God is aware, if God is able to see and he's able to judge and he's able to do something about it because he's in heaven, he's on the throne, he's still reigning, why is he not doing anything about it? Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, we'll get there one day in our study, gives us an answer to that question. In Second Peter chapter 3, He says this, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. This is why God is waiting and is patient so that people would come to repentance. A perfect example of that is Jose. Multiple opportunities to repent and God protected him from life in prison until he finally repented. As he was drawing him in and reminding him of the truth of the gospel. And then putting Bibles in front of him every chance he got to prison. To pull him towards himself, hoping that he would repent. But at the same time, we don't forget Exodus 34, verses 7 and 8, where God says, that he is loving and that he is kind and he's compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. In other words, yes, God is compassionate and kind and loving and patient, but he will judge. There will come a point of judgment. And so in verse six, he says, he will rain fire and brimstone and burning. When was the last time that you remember in the Bible that fire came down from heaven? Sodom and Gomorrah. Guess what? Exactly the same language in Hebrew is being used here as in Genesis 19.24. David, in trying to pacify his own crisis and calm himself down from the fear and anxiety that is prompting him to flee from opposition, he remembers that God judges the wicked severely. Genesis 19.24, that if it, even if it takes that kind of a apocalyptic judgment, that fire has to come down from heaven to judge those who oppose him. God will do that. He has done that and he will do that again. The past is a reminder of God's power and God's presence and God's ability to do something like that in the future. And in Isaiah 40 verse 10, Isaiah says, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will bring a reward to the righteous and he will bring recompense to the wicked. And the basis of all that judgment is in verse seven, it's his righteousness. God's righteousness in verse seven, he's righteous, his character is all about righteousness. He loves righteousness. And then you could say, and the righteous will see his face. The righteous will behold or the upright will behold his face. Psalm seventeen fifteen says, as for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I wake up. That's the longing of all of our hearts who are God's people. We want to see 
his face. We want to see him. We want to see him in righteousness. So while Exodus 33 verse 20 says, no one can see God's face and live. And John 1.18 says, no one has seen God at any time. Jesus says in John 14.9, he who has seen me has seen the father. In Hebrews 1.3, it says, Jesus is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature. And then 1 John 3.2, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself as he is pure. And then Matthew 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. Do you see the link between all those verses? I didn't randomly throw them together. There are words that connect them in that order because you can't see God, Old Testament, New Testament. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you have seen God because I'm the exact representation of God. And then the only way to see Jesus is to be pure, 1 John 3, 2 and 3. And then the pure in heart will see God. My conviction is that we will never see God the Father, but we will always see Jesus, the exact and the eternal permanent representation of God the Father. Because John 14, 9 says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then no one can see God. You have to reconcile those passages. Otherwise, one becomes outdated or needs to be updated, right? No, we, God is a spirit. We won't see him, but Jesus takes on a body permanently. You want to talk about humiliation and humility? Take on a human body for the rest of eternity in order to reflect God to people that you have died for. That's the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for eternity. David is thinking, anticipating, wanting all this. And he says, okay, the righteous are being attacked. And it's causing panic in the land, panic in his own heart. But he remembers God is on his throne. God is righteous. God is powerful. God knows. God sees. God is doing whatever he's doing and we can't stop him, nor can we question him. Read the book of Job if you have questions about what it's like to question God. And then he says, I'm going to trust God because he's righteous and he rewards the righteous and he recompenses the wicked. But in all of this, there's a deeper parallel, even with our own study in second Peter back in second Peter chapter three, I already read verse nine, but this is what Peter continues to say in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burnt up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Do you see the connection back to Psalm 11? Righteousness reappears. The burning judgment reappears. 
in both passages because he says, ultimately the point of all of this self-reflection is to remember God will judge, therefore aspire to righteousness because we want to be in the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. And until you are righteous enough to be in heaven and to see the face of God, regard the patience of our Lord as your salvation. So in other words, be thankful that God hasn't come yet because you are still sinful and I'm still sinful and God is still waiting for all to come to repentance. Second Peter 3, 9. As evil as Putin, as evil as Manasseh, as evil as anybody else in human history, Manasseh repented. And as much as we want to condemn the evil around us, First Timothy 2 says, pray for all in authority. And we're going to do that tonight because we want to be faithful to obey the command of scripture. But as we do that, I hope you reflect it in your own heart. Are you a Christian? Are you righteous? Are you pursuing righteousness? Do you understand that if you're not righteous, that ultimately God will judge you? And the multiple passages we looked at tonight indicate that. And God doesn't want to judge you. Because he's already judged Jesus Christ in your place if you believe in him as your only savior. And he took the wrath of God's judgment. He fully poured out the cup of wrath on Jesus Christ. So that we would never have to even look into it. Because if you were to look into it, you couldn't stand it on your own. But the cup that Jesus drank is fully empty. No wrath is left at all for you in that cup. If you believe in Jesus, that's the gospel. That's where it begins. That's what we believe. That's what we love. That's what we tell others so that we and they would never, ever have to be judged. Until then, there is chaos and there's fear and there's a panic and a crisis and we want to move and flee and protect ourselves. And yet we remember the following, this quote, God's people throughout the world Wake up in different time zones. Some are going to sleep in a different time zone. Others are waking up. And as they do, they are saying, the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Here I am in North Korea. I can hardly function in many areas of my life, but Jesus Christ is king. Here I am in Kuala Lumpur. Here I am in the heartlands of India. Here I am. And so God's people rise at every hour of the day to praise him in every time zone in the world. Why? Because he reigns. That's it. Earth's proud empires will all pass away, but the kingdom of Jesus Christ will continue, grow, triumph, and last forever. 